The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. As we move to pray, I want to pray, especially for something that I, I heard and I don't know any of the facts about, but I heard that there was perhaps some incident at a YWAM facility this morning and along the lines of an attack, and so I don't know any details about that at all, but I'm going to pray and ask God to be at work in their midst, wherever they are, whatever's going on. So pray with me for that and then for our time in the Word this morning. Scripture says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Lord, this is in your word. You have said that you would set up your son, that you have set up your son, and that you will give all of the nations to him, that all things will come under his full and total reign. There will be peace one day. And we think this this morning of, of some things perhaps that have happened that are not at all for peace. We don't know why or we don't know what exactly, but I pray, Lord, that you who does know, would you be present with those folks, perhaps with YWAM people, maybe with emergency folks. I don't know any of the details, Lord, but would you give peace there? Would you work, establish justice, keep safety? If there are people injured, to to be looking over those situations and, and bringing health or safety, security, whatever the case may be, whatever the needs are, Lord. And in this, would your name be honored? The world is not at peace. The world still holds off the authority of the Son that you have set up as King. Would you hasten the day when his reign and rule extends, not just in the spiritual realm, not just in the physical realm over rebels, but extends in the spiritual and the physical realm over all people who are at peace with him and with one another. Lord, hasten that day. Lord, we pray in confidence that it will come because of this passage. This passage says it will happen. And what we look at today in the Scriptures, Lord, assures us that you have all power to back it up and to bring it to pass. And so we pray in confidence, would you do that? Lord, I pray for us as a congregation here today. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you for the moment set aside all those things that that threaten to, to take our minds away, to drag us away from the Scriptures and from your truth? Set those things aside, Lord, that we may hear from you. Give grace to me that I may speak truthfully and give grace to my friends here that they may hear accurately. And in it would Christ be lifted up and exalted for your glory and for our great good. That is my prayer, Lord. Be present here in power this morning, I pray. Amen.
For many of us, fear and evangelism are a natural common pairing in our minds and in our personal experience. If you're a Christian, you have almost certainly experienced timidity, hesitance, uncertainty, reluctance, or sheer terror when it comes to the idea of sharing your faith. That's a common thing for us, and it often silences us. And that is not right. We have been called, we have been sent on a mission to proclaim Christ, to make Him known everywhere to all people. And we are not to be silenced from fear. That's not an appropriate response. Silence might be. It might be wise in any given situation to be silent, to listen, to not express all of the gospel in all of its totality in any given moment. That might be wisdom. So it could be wise to be silent, but not to be silent from fear. That is not an appropriate response. Last week we looked at the root of confident communication of Christ. In the beginning of Acts chapter 4 last week, and we saw how do you fight against that fear? We learned some things in that chapter, and we're still on that same basic theme this morning as we move into the last half of of chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Over these last several weeks, we've been working essentially on one main event in Acts chapter 3 and 4, and the fallout from it. Peter and John, on the way to the temple, going there to pray, they come upon a lame man who's been sitting at the temple gate now for decades, lame, begging. And in the power of the name of Jesus, they heal him. And as you would expect, he stands up, leaps for joy, is very excited, runs around praising, draws a huge crowd of people who know him because he's been there for all these years. They know who he is. They see what's happened to him. They're extremely puzzled by it. And they say, essentially, what's the deal? What has happened? Drawing a big crowd of people. And Peter answers that question. This is the last half of Acts 3. By again preaching to the crowds about Jesus. He makes very clear, we didn't do this, Jesus has done it. By the power of this one, this one who is the anointed one, who is the the holy and righteous one, the author of life, the fulfiller of all the promises, this one, the suffering servant, by faith in his name, this man has been made well and leaps for joy now. And the sole way He goes on, the sole way that we can be healed inside is by faith in His name alone, by trusting in what He has done on the cross. If you come and trust Him, He wipes away your sin, you're welcomed into the presence of God, and blessing, refreshing, flows out onto you. It's joyous, it's wonderful, it's good news. So turn to Him, repent and turn to Him and experience that blessing. That's Peter's message. He preaches that to the crowds, and the authorities hate it. And they come, and they arrest him and John, throw him in prison until the next day, when they bring them before the Sanhedrin, the official ruling council, the 71 men who ruled over Israel at the time. Officially, they bring them to question them, but really they bring them to intimidate them into silence. They threaten them, and they make very clear, if you continue to preach that message, Peter, it will hurt you. Peter says, I got the message, but I also got a message from somebody else. And you judge for yourself if I should listen to you or to God. He rejects their warnings. They threaten him again and release them. Now, the, the, uh, 
the threat has not subsided. In fact, the Sanhedrin is just putting it off until they can gain a little more leverage over him. Their hearts are actually hardened, not softened. So the threat remains. The church is in danger. There's a crisis. And that's the message that Peter and John carry to the believers immediately upon their release. Which brings us to our passage for this morning in Acts chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 23 to 31 from Acts 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The apostles return and immediately tell the others of the threat, and they break out in a strategy meeting to figure out how to minimize the exposure of the church, how to spread the word of caution to all the believers, how to evacuate the men and the women and the children who aren't essential. No, they didn't do that. The message comes of a threat, and they immediately, it says, turn to God in prayer. This is a threat against them, but it's a challenge to God. They take it to where it belongs. They go to the Lord, and they lift up their voices to Him in prayer. And the rest of this passage, except for the very last verse, the rest of the passage is that prayer. So we're, we're looking at a prayer today, and how it begins, how they entitle God, is very important. They begin, and they, they address Him in a certain way that, that connects us to what we looked at last week. Remember the, the root of confidence last week was a decision about who you're going to fear. Are you going to fear people and what they threaten you with, or are you going to fear God? That's the essence of Peter's response. Who should I listen to, guys, you or God? What we saw there is if you will stand in the presence of God, if you will look at Him and be awed by Him as if you stand at the foot of Niagara and, and the water thunders down and, and drenches you in its mist and drowns out all of the thoughts with its sound, if you will stand there, you will be awed by what you are seeing. If you will stand in the presence of God, you will be awed by what you are seeing and you will not be awed by anything else. The fear of God drives out the fear of all other things. Saw that last week, and this prayer connects directly to that. And how they address him and what they pray about him is important. They begin by addressing him, Sovereign Lord. Lord, the one in charge. 
the authority over all of the earth, everywhere, the creator of the earth, in fact. That's who they're addressing. The one who made everything. The one who reigns over it all, the Sanhedrin included. That's who they're talking to, and then they quote Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is one of the two introductory psalms of the whole book of the psalm. It's very familiar to people. And so they're probably actually, the fact that they quote it probably means they were looking at it and refreshing their minds with its content. They refer to it here. Psalm 2 was, was widely known to be a messianic psalm because it's a psalm written by King David, as is clear here. But it talks about Davidic kings. Kings in the line of David, descending from David. The anointed one. Today, I set you on the throne. I anoint you. You reign. And then he dies. And another one. Today, I set you on the throne. I anoint you and you reign. He dies. Today, another one. On and on and on. All the kings in the line of David would have used this psalm. But everybody knew that none of them fulfilled it. The many things in this psalm aren't, can't be fulfilled in someone who lives and reigns and dies, especially when, as many of them were, he's wicked. So everybody knew we're talking about an anointed one, the Messiah, the King to come, and they're looking for him. They're looking and they're waiting. You can even see it, the last word of the part that they quote here, against the Lord and against his anointed, that word there is Messiah, or in Greek it's Christ. They're looking for the, the Christ to whom this applies. And the apostles are quick to apply it to Jesus. We've seen a lot of other reasons why they are convinced that Jesus is the Christ. Well, here now they apply it to him, talking about the holy servant whom you've anointed in verse 28. 27 and, and uh, I'm sorry, 27. They connected at the, at the level of the anointed one in each place. They connected at the level of the gathered ones. Psalm 2 says that people were gathered together against the Lord. And they apply that to Herod, ruler of the Jews, the Jewish people. Pilate, ruler of the Gentiles, Gentile peoples. People gathered together. By whom? This is an important point. If you read that, especially if you're looking at the NAS or the ESV, you'll see this. Were gathered together is not just a statement in the past tense. It's a statement in the passive. Someone else is gathering them together. Something else pulls these people together in Jerusalem to rebel against the Lord and his anointed. Who? Well, if you've been following along in the book of Acts, you know Peter's already preached on this back in chapter 2. But here they pray about it very clearly in verse 28. Jew and Gentile gathered together in order, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is in charge of this. He predestined that this happened. A word there that means to mark out beforehand, to draw a line beforehand, to determine a destiny before. Specifically means he did not look ahead and first consult what people would do, discover that they would reject the Messiah, and then work backwards and reason, I guess I can work with that. I'll make that the center of my plan of redemption. Didn't work like that. That would be post-determining. He predetermined. He reigns over this whole thing. He sets it up. He's in charge of it. 
He determines it, he plans it, and then his hand executes it. He reigns over all of these things. Psalm 2 is talking about this rebellion. God brings it to pass. They pray all of that. This is so far, this is their prayer. They're praying all of that. They are recounting it. And then they finally get to the request. Lord, consider their threats. What would you pray there? Get them, somebody said. We might pray that. Lord, consider their threats. I suspect many of us would be tempted to pray and protect us from them. Shelter us. Put a, put a guard around us. Help by holding off their threats, thwarting them. And there's nothing wrong with praying that. The Bible's full of that kind of prayer. But notice something. We have a bias that they do not share. I suspect that nine out of ten times, that's how we would pray. Lord, consider their threats and protect us, help us, comfort us. They have a totally different mindset. In their mindset, we are on the offensive. We are on the team that has the ball. We're not on defense. So we're not praying, they say. We're not praying, Lord, help us hold them off. We're praying, help us advance. We have totally different bias than they do. They pray. Look upon their threats. And while you continue to pour out miracles of healing that show what salvation is like, of sign miracles that point to Jesus as the Savior, while you do that, Lord, give us boldness to fill in the blanks with our words. We're pressing forward. Give us boldness to do that. That's what we're supposed to do. Help us. That's the prayer. And God hears their prayer, and as a sign of it, He shakes the earth where they are staying. They're filled with the Spirit, and they press on in boldness. That's the text. That, that's the prayer. It's the passage that we're looking at this morning. When I first came to this passage and I realized it was a prayer, I was kind of excited because I'm looking for an opportunity to preach about prayer, waiting for a chance to come up here to preach about the importance of prayer in outreach in missions, in other thinking, the importance of us praying that God would move in people's hearts and would change them and would open their eyes and awaken them, pour out His Spirit on them. That's a critical element in missions and in outreach and evangelism. I think we're weak in that as a church, and I've been looking for a chance to preach about that, and then I keep reading and realize that's not really what this prayer is about. I can't do that today. This prayer isn't about other people at all. This prayer is hardly about us. If you just look at it, it's 75, 85% about God and a little bit about us at the very end. So I'm going to follow the pattern of this prayer in this sermon, and most of it's going to be about God, a little bit about us at the end. But if the Spirit would come and graciously move and take this passage and make it live, a little bit at the end won't actually be necessary at all. Because you'll see something about God. You'll be in the place of these people and you'll experience Him. And He'll grow boldness in you as is supposed to happen. I'll clarify that part at the end. We will come to that. 
But listen closely through the first two parts because this should grip you and change you and it should produce almost automatically the result of the end. There are three stages in this prayer, the third one of which is the application to us, the little part at the end is about us. I'm going to begin where the prayer does by looking at God and considering Him and really one slice of Him, one particular aspect of massive truth about Him and how He is. Here's the first point, the first stage of the prayer. God reigns over all of the earth in sovereign, omnipotent power. God reigns over all of the earth in sovereign, omnipotent power. He reigns, but not as a hollow king. Great Britain today has a monarch, has a royal figure, but she has no power, nor will her son when he assumes the throne. It's largely nostalgic window dressing. The real, parliament, the real power is in parliament. That is decidedly not the kind of king that God is. He reigns in absolute power, sovereign, unrivaled, unshared, uncompromised, omnipotent power. He does all of His holy will always. And if you understand this doctrine, it will be either a terror to you if you are against Him, or the sweetest of all doctrines if you are for Him. If you will understand the sovereign, omnipotent, reigning power of God, my hope is that it will become sweet to you and you will hope in it and trust in it. Verse 24, the beginning of the prayer. Sovereign Lord. The word used there is actually a word sometimes used for slave masters. Not because God has evil in him like a slave master does, but because he has the same kind of power. Total unquestioned, sovereign Lord, Master, you are the one who reigns. Where is that reigning power seen? Well, it's seen especially in the three main verbs throughout this prayer. There are a couple other verbs that are ascribed to God, but there are three main verbs. Verse 24, he made. Verse 25, he spoke, he said. Verse 28, he predestined. Verse 24, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who created all things by His imagination, by His own choice, by His own power, nothing helped Him, nothing advised Him, nothing provided the raw materials, nothing provided the blueprints, nobody financed this project, nobody approved it, checked off on it, evaluated it, modified it. In Himself, He alone, the Sovereign One, made everything that is, the environment and all that is in it, raw materials, solid, liquid, gas, physical matter, spiritual matter, spiritual beings, all thought up by Him, created by Him, placed by Him. It is a massive display of His wisdom and His power on the macro scale where there are planets and stars and galaxies and on the micro scale where there are atoms and molecules. Everything displays His total power, including His creation of us. Chief of His creatures, but His creatures nonetheless. 
We are his creatures. We live in his creation. He reigns over all of that which he made, displays his authority and his power. Secondly, it's, in, it's displayed in what he said, in the fact that he spoke. The Bible, a thousand years before, records that he predicted the cross. He predicted the mass rejection of Jesus. Now that speaks to his wisdom, but it also speaks to his power, because as we've seen several times, because the Bible says something, that itself means it will happen. It's not just noticing what other people will do. It assures they will do it. If he's predicted it, it will come to pass. And he predicted the suffering of the Messiah, and they're saying, it happened. What power you have to bring the future to pass. Which connects to the third word. The reason he can bring it to pass is that he predestined it. He ordered it. He planned it. It wasn't even the people's plans that brought them all together at Jerusalem to reject Jesus. Yet Rome had a plan to expand its power by conquering Judea. Pilate had a plan to climb the, the political hierarchy by keeping the peace and getting a good reputation. The Jewish leaders and rulers had a plan to maintain their position in their religious system. But over all of that, God had a plan. His plan of redemption. It includes a creation of people. It includes the fall. That includes prophecy about the coming solution to that fall. That culminates in his Messiah coming to earth, being rejected, being crucified, and opening up from his very side the only fountain of love and grace and forgiveness, cleansing. He works all of that together through the rejection of people who think they are getting away from God's authority but don't realize that they've never escaped it and in fact are doing his bidding. Careful there. It does not mean, some connect that to think, then did God sin? If God reigned over the crucifixion of the Son, did God sin? No, people sin. People commit evil acts. God didn't force anybody to reject Jesus or kill him. Didn't do anything like that. Their hearts, the human heart, dead in sin, it's already decisively bent against Divine righteousness and divine holiness. All God has to do is bring people together, place in their midst, in the proper place, front and center, the holy and righteous one. That's what he did. He brings Jesus there, moves him to center stage with much clear warning, with many signs, with much clear teaching. This is the Christ. You should embrace him. But people's hearts bent against him, reject him which is exactly how God planned it. He's a wise God. And He's a powerful God. In absolute sovereign power, He works rejection and sin to be the solution to rejection and sin. It's magnificent. And if you think about that and you get that, it should cause some fear in you if you are set against him because it means you cannot escape him and you cannot overcome him. If that's you, I hope that you clearly see an absolutely all-powerful God 
who will sort out all things correctly and justly. And I hope that if you are against him, you fear him. But don't run from him. Run to him. That may seem counterintuitive, but the only place you can go to safely flee from that kind of powerful God angered is to that kind of powerful God pacified, made to be at peace. That only happens in the cross. That's the message that Peter's preaching that so infuriated the leaders. Peace with God, blessing from God can come, but only in one place at the cross come there to him. Don't try to run away from him. You can't get away. That should speak to people who don't yet trust Christ, but that's not really the focus in this prayer. These are believers praying. This is focused at believers. How should this affect us? Well, God's sovereign authority over everything, even over evil, should be a sweet comfort to you. As you look out over your life and you see... All kinds of things this should be a comfort in. All kinds of challenges. Unemployment and health crises and relational disappointments or strains. Difficulties at school, whether it be in, in studies or with, with friends. That confusion of trying to kind of figure out who you are and why God made you that way. The current struggles that you have with sin and trying to obey Him and walk after Him. Over all of those things, God is sovereignly reigning. This should be a comfort to you, especially when you join it with his nature of being good. He has all power to work in your life, and he always works good in your life if you're a believer. It should be a great comfort to you in many situations, but none of them are the focus of this passage either. So you can apply it to that, but don't chiefly apply it there. This passage exists in a context of a furious Sanhedrin who has threatened to stop the spread of the gospel by force. That's the context. And in that context, the absolute, sovereign, powerful reign of God is great comfort to the believers because of how that power is applied. Which brings us to the second point. God reigns in sovereign, omnipotent power towards what end? What does he do with it? Because he could have all kinds of power and sit on the couch and do nothing. That would be very comforting. He has all kinds of power and he's doing something in particular with it. Here's the second point. God's power establishes and expands the promised kingdom of Christ. He establishes it and he expands it. It's a promised kingdom and he's working to spread it. Christ has been enthroned in power. He is reigning in power and it is spreading out in power. That is sure and it is promised. That's the point of them praying Psalm 2 at this moment. Why are they thinking about Psalm 2? Why do they rehearse it in their minds and then pray it directly back to God? Because of what's in Psalm 2. They just experience this opposition to the Messiah, and they're saying, look, this is what's going on. People are opposing the Messiah, and they're opposing us. Lord, Psalm 2 is happening. 
Would you bring the rest of Psalm 2 to pass? That's what their thinking is. Turn to Psalm 2 and look at this. Probably about right in the middle of your Bible. Sometimes we we have too genteel of a view of God, as if if he is always a kind gentleman and he is a politically correct, people-pleasing politician who always says only nice things to those who disagree with him. That's not true. And this passage makes that clear. God can, of course, speak kindly, very graciously, and he can also trash talk. And this is an example of the latter. They rebel, verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You want to reject me? You want to reject my Messiah? Go ahead, take your best shot. Do what you can. I have, as for me, what I've done, I have set my king on this hill, enthroned him. Take your best shot. It's mocking them. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verses 8 and 9 then. And here's the, here's the key point. This is what's so assuring about Psalm 2. Here's what this vast power of God is bent towards. Verse 8, Ask of me, the Lord says to this enthroned, anointed son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Son, I tell you, I will do that for you and in you and through you. That's the promise. The nations rise up, and I promise you, I will give all of them to you as your possession, and I will crush all opposition like a rod of iron crushes a clay pot. This is not kind and gentle, polite speaking. This is in your face sort of talk. God. I have made my decision about this one right here, my son. He is the king. I will not go back on that. He is the one who will reign, and it will happen. So as the psalm continues, so nations, so kings, be very careful. You pick a fight with him, you pick a fight with me, and you don't want that fight. So turn and kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and summon me. Kiss the Son, a universal sign of submission. Bow down, kiss His feet in submission to Him. Lest He be angry with you. Now, if you're in the shoes of Peter and John, do you see, do you get how this is supposed to be comforting? Do you see, do you get how this is supposed to be comforting for you in your very own shoes? Peter walks out of the Sanhedrin, walks out of jail, and then walks out of the intimidation session at the Sanhedrin, probably a little afraid. Though he stood up to them, he's probably working his mind, 
they're going to kill us. I mean, really, kill us. That's what they were saying. They're going to throw us in prison. All of us. What are we going to do about that? They opposed this message very strongly. They made that really clear. And he goes to his Bible, opens up Psalm 2 and says, Lord, they are against you. They are throwing off the cords of your anointed and they are against us, the anointed, the anointed's people. What are you going to do? And he keeps reading. Oh, you're not threatened by that, are you? You're laughing at them because it's futile. You have actually sworn you, God the Father, has made a promise to God the Son to give him all of this stuff, to triumph. You're not going to go back on that promise. You don't break your promises, period, and you particularly don't break your promises to your son. Thank God. All of that vast power that is yours, by which you made everything here, by which you spoke, by which you orchestrated all these events, predestining and planning and executing them by their hand, all of that power is bent to carry out this promise. Thank God. see that. And what does that mean? That we're going to like ride a wave of success all the way into shore and the wave is never going to break and we're never going to get wet, never going to get hurt, never going to be imprisoned or tortured or killed. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that when those things happen, God reigns over them the God who was good and always does good for his people individually and for his people corporately, who always advances the kingdom of his son, it means that all of those things, when they happen, have been determined by God to be good for us. Individually, corporately, and good for him and his glory. Now that is a very hard challenge. That is very difficult to sort through. Especially... If some of what I've heard about what's going on at the YWAM thing right now is true, that is very, very difficult to believe. When you look at loss and death, especially loss and death that could have been avoided if you just left the gospel alone and carried on with your merry way. It's, it's very hard to believe that. But it is true. I promise... I will make the nations your heritage, my Christ. I promise I will make the ends of the earth your possession, Jesus. I promise you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Power deployed to certainly, absolutely advance the kingdom in His glory and our good. How does he do that? How does he advance the kingdom? He already told us that. Acts 1.8 I'm going to send my spirit. Power will be in you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. How does the glory of Christ spread to the ends of the earth? Out of the mouths of his people. 
It is surely going to happen, and we have a part in it. But too often we shrink back in fear. We turn away from our part in it because we're afraid of what we will lose. And really, it's not even might lose. It is will lose. It will cost us. It will. It always has cost the church. We are not to shrink back, though. Which brings us to the third point. This is the small point about us. And if you've seen the first two points, and if the Spirit is at work in you and you're, and you're processing these things, the third point is obvious, logical, and, and not really important to be stated because you already get it. I'm going to state it, though, just to be clear. What's the third point? What are we supposed to do? How do we respond? We pray for spirit-induced boldness and proclamation. That's their request. That's obviously how we're supposed to respond. We pray for boldness. Lord, they say, their simple prayer request, while you continue to miraculously give evidence to Jesus, would you embolden us to be verbal witnesses towards him, about him, towards others? That's what they ask. And he responds by filling them with the Spirit, and they move on boldly. We must do likewise. That should be obvious. So pray. Pray that God would move in you to create boldness in you. Not just blabbering. Because there are times to be quiet. Or to say pieces and parts. I'm not saying that we always are always totally talking about the gospel. But we should never be silent in fear. So pray that he will create boldness in you to proclaim the gospel. But notice carefully, it is spirit-produced boldness. The boldness comes from the spirit filling us. I think that sometimes we just think about boldness, or you hear somebody like me say, pray for boldness, and, and our thought is kind of like, I guess the outcome of that would be that I would be just less scared. So, I hope that happens to me. In the meantime, I'm still scared. Or, I, I think the outcome would be that I'd be less self-conscious. And so, until I become less self-conscious, I guess that prayer hasn't been answered. So, I'll just keep praying and waiting and, and living. There's a little more to it. Boldness comes from somewhere. It doesn't just happen. It comes from something. It's based in something. Confidence has a root. I saw an architectural design show once that was featuring several different interesting, unique homes from all across the United States. They showed some, some round houses and some odd-shaped houses and those sorts of things. And they were featuring all the different quirks in these homes and their different features and the things that were cool and neat and interesting about them. And one home they highlighted was on the North Carolina coast, an area very vulnerable to hurricanes. So this is, this is kind of interesting. It's in a hurricane zone, but the folks who lived in it didn't give a rip about hurricanes. You care less about them. Because there weren't any hurricanes? No, there were all kinds of hurricanes in their area. Because they had a, a, a great advanced warning system and good roads to get away and go inland? No. 
because their home was built entirely within a World War II era coastal artillery emplacement. A great big solid concrete box. Have you ever seen like pictures of, of Normandy or D-Day or Saving Private Ryan? You've seen those huge emplacements that the big artillery pieces were in? Not the little ones the soldiers were in, but the really big ones? That kind of thing. So their home, the walls and the roof of their home are made out of several feet thick, still reinforced concrete designed to withstand direct hits from bombs and naval artillery. <laughs> the windows were the former gun apertures. So they're set way back in the concrete, and then they're, so they're not vulnerable, and then they've got very heavy glass on them. And they had a pantry, and they had a generator. They didn't care at all about hurricanes. I mean, it didn't look like very much from the outside, but you know, they're, they're like, Category 5, I don't care. I'm not even going to hear it when I go to bed tonight. Their confidence, their fearlessness comes from being hid within tremendous strength. Hurricanes are irrelevant to them because they are sheltered all around by unlimited, unrivaled power. The hurricane can, grow, can blow as much as it wants. It won't do anything to it. Fearlessness comes from being sheltered amidst Strength. And the bottom line, the bottom line, the reason that you and I are so afraid so often when it comes to sharing our faith is that we really don't believe that we are sheltered by any significant strength. The reason that we're so afraid is we really don't believe that that strength is working out a plan that triumphs and is for our good. In other words, we don't believe this passage. We say we do. I, I doubt anybody would say that they don't right off. Oh, I don't believe Acts 4. But the fear betrays you. It betrays me too. I'm not just saying it's you. Fear betrays you. You really don't believe that he reigns over all things. That he has that kind of sovereign and omnipotent power that has guaranteed the fulfillment of his promise to the Son through you. And the Spirit's job, the Spirit's job is to take this truth and convince you of it. That's why you must be filled with the Spirit. That's why the result of this passage, God answers this prayer to give them boldness by filling them with the Spirit. They know all this stuff. So do you. I haven't said anything you didn't know. They, they know all this stuff, but when they walk out the door and they face the Sanhedrin, it's going to go whoop, right out of their minds. And this angry group of men is going to intimidate them unless the Spirit takes this back sticks it in and drives it down so that they will say, yes, you're angry. He is omnipotent. He is for me. Who can be against me? I hear the message, and I hear this message right now by the Spirit's power at work in me. So when you pray for boldness, you don't just pray, make me bold. You pray for boldness like this. Spirit, 
Make me bold by refreshing my mind with Psalm 2, for instance. Spirit, make me bold by bringing this up so that it controls my thinking, and they do not, and their threats do not. Convince me of it and remind me of it. They're rehearsing this now. They need to rehearse it again and again and again, and so do you. Remind me of it. Fill me, Spirit. So you yield your heart to the Spirit and you say, that's how boldness comes. Give it, please. Take the Word. Apply it to me. Apply it to me in my heart. Our sovereign God will triumph. What do I have to be afraid of? Of course there's going to be pain and loss. God determines that there be some of that in life. Of course the progress of the church is going to go up and down and up and down. Different places at different times. Why? We don't know the answer to that. The Spirit is working us. His intention is in us is not that we would know all the answers, but that we would know Him who holds all of this in His hands, who made it all, who speaks it all into being, and executes His plan. That we would know Him and would be moved to trust Him in the face of opposition. So pray for that. Pray, God, give me boldness by teaching me about You and helping me to advance even though people oppose me. Our sovereign God triumphs. What do you have to be afraid of? Let me pray. Lord, there is so little that is new here and so little that we have mastered. So my prayer is that you'd fill in the gap. You would take what we know and that you would change us with it. That you would impress upon our brothers and sisters here and those here who are not yet believers, that you would impress upon us the vastness of your power and you would impress upon us and give us unshakable confidence in the sureness of your promise. And that would be a motivator to move out confident, bold. God, you have to do that if that's going to happen in us. It's not in our power. It's not in our hearts to do it. Would you please, by your Spirit, make that happen here in our midst? And would you spread the kingdom because of it? It's my hope, Lord, my prayer. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.